We are currently in a post-modern world, a post-modern world. We have gone through a philosophy known as relativism, where everything is relative, truth is relative. And I quote, the doctrine of relativism is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exists not in relation to God, but instead in relation to culture, in relation to society, in relation to historical context, and that there is no such thing as absolute truth anywhere. Because culture changes, truth changes, they say. And uh, because society changes, truth changes just as well. So somebody came to me, I remember when I was at college, and they said, uh, while I was reading my Bible in the cafeteria, they said, hey, did you know that, pointing to the Bible, did you know that there's no such thing as absolute truth? Are you not familiar with the, the theory of re relativity? And, and um, I said, what do you mean there's no absolute truth? He says, there's no absolute truth. I said to him, are you absolutely sure what you're saying is true? Well, Everything that seems to come from this modern culture is very much self-defeating in a way. Now, after colleges and universities have saturated the minds of a generation with this philosophy of relativism, we have now successfully arrived at what is called de deconstructionism. Deconstructionism. It's a postmodern philosophical view of life. And this is where all structures, including power structures, are to be deconstructed. A hierarchy, all hierarchy is to be deconstructed, including even government and power is to be deconstructed. The family unit is to be deconstructed. The patriarchy is to be deconstructed. Everything needs to be deconstructed. We see this in art, in postmodern art. We see it in postmodern architecture. Have you ever noticed that over the last, uh, uh, the last few decades, much of the architectural designs is somewhat deconstructed. It's, it doesn't make sense. You look at it and you want to like, what are all these panels for? No, that's a building right there. You see it even when you travel down 53 and you're going north as you pass Whitfield Mall, but you're on 53 and you pass and you're right at the, at, at the Whitfield Mall is on your left, right opposite it, there's a building. It looks like it's, it's built in such a way that it looks like it's falling into the ground like it has no foundation. It's called deconstructionism. It's called the architecture of deconstructionism. And that is a mindset. That building is a picture of the mindset people have embraced in our postmodern world. Not only do we see it now in architecture, but in art, but it's also now true in language and in culture. I'm going somewhere with this, so please follow me because this is an attempt to explain some of the evils that has been designed to destroy our families, our religious institutions, and our society as a whole. So now we see this philosophy of deconstruction in our language when it's, we see that it's the deconstruction of terms. We see deconstructionism in the altering of the meaning of a word. It's deconstructionism. 
when a word no longer means what it used to mean, they've now changed it. I think one of the best examples would be Michael Jackson singing, I'm bad, which means I'm actually good. <laughs> it's the deconstruction of a term. It's a changing of the meaning. It's an altering of the word. We see deconstructionism in the reinterpretation of phrases. It is the rewriting of history. We see a lot of revisionism going on. It is the demolishing of structures and culture. It is the erasing of all boundaries. It is the removing of any kind of guardrail. Nothing, nothing defines us anymore. We now become undefined. I can now be, what, 65 different sexual orientations? Nothing defines me. I am free. I, I have now entered the zone of postmodernism and the deconstruction thereof. The deconstruction, or we see deconstructionism in the erasing of boundaries, the removing of guardrails, the toppling of any kind of authority structure. Everything needs to be toppled. Because everything that seems like either a border or a flag or a guardrail or a law or a law enforcement institution or anything that tells me I can't be whatever I want to be, as fluid as I want to be, has to be deconstructed. We see this postmodern philosophy of deconstructionism uh, that has been infiltrating our college, our college curriculums uh, for generations. And that is now played out in our streets. Deconstructionism is now played out on our TV screens, in our movies, and in our homes. Here is Ravi Zachariah, a man we love dearly, who passed away just a few weeks ago. Here he is explaining our current generation's mindset and the problem that this mindset poses to our society. Thank you. especially, uh, John, if you look at the mother of all philosophies, as it were, it's the continent of Europe. You know, you go back to rationalism in the time of René Descartes and so on. Rationalism was succeeded in the Enlightenment and then empiricism came on. From empiricism, we moved to existentialism, and after existentialism came postmodernism. This is fascinating, because if you go back to rationalism, it is by reason alone. If you go to empiricism, it was, you know, the empirical method and logical positivism and all of this came into being. But then came the existentialists in the 60s and so on, people like Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus. They were brilliant writers and basically what they were doing was saying this, hey, wait a minute, all this cerebral stuff, all this laboratory stuff, you know, it sounds wonderful, but I'm a person with desires and emotions and feelings. Where does all this fit into your theory? I will, I feel, I want. And so existentialism was really the will to make your own choice in the face of despair and find some meaning in your own life. And they were very sharp in how they did this. They moved away from the academic world of theory to the world of literature in storytelling. 
So Sergeant Camus and all were pulling out the books, you know, no exit, nausea. And as they were, uh, the wall, these famous books, you know, they're, they're short books, some of them. But they were telling a story, and university students were gobbling this up. They could identify themselves with the story. So it moved from sort of rationalism to empiricism to existentialism. And finally came postmodernism. And postmodernism <coughs> decided to throw all of those out. And they said, look, these are too absolutistic. You're giving me boundaries. And so postmodernism, if it's defined, can be defined in three terms. But no truth, no meaning, no certainty. No truth, no meaning, no certainty. Jacques Derrida, again, the Frenchman, became one of the prime movers of this philosophy. He was lecturing all over the United States. And what came out of this was post-structuralism. Even the story was now dismantled. Forget the argument. The story was going to be jettisoned. And it moved the authority of interpretation from the author to the reader. The reader could rewrite. The reader could reinterpret. The reader could retell. And all of a sudden, you had millions of people reinterpreting reality. Now, what I want to say is this. There was a sort of a sliver of truth in all of those, you know, place for reason, the place for empiricism, the place for experience and will, and now the question of, hey, what authority do I have when I see all of this? So in grabbing the finger of one, they thought they were grabbing the fist of all of reality. The fascinating thing to me about the gospel is there's the place for reason, there is the place for experience, there's the place for empirical investigation, and there's the place for the individual and how God uh, gives you your own individuality and restores to you the uniqueness in the way he's hardwired you. But postmodernism actually ended up, being, ended up being huge damage in terms of authority of structure and of truth. No truth, no meaning, no certainty. And postmodernism has become the reigning worldview by implication. So I just have this question. If you're on a plane and the plane is in trouble, would you want a postmodernist pilot who says, I know this is what the instruments say, 10,000, but I'm going to believe there's no such thing as truth, meaning, and certainty, and I'm going to decide my own altitude. You don't do that when you're on the side of depending upon truth. There is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as meaning, and there is such a thing as certainty, even in the way we make our choices. So postmodernism is nothing more than an escape hatch to make yourself God. Right from the beginning, there was a postmodernist in Genesis, as God really said, <coughs> as God spoken. No truth, no meaning, no certainty. Right in the book of Genesis, postmodernism. So it's not post anything. It is actually the condition of fallen man. Bill, I think that postmodernism is that all the stoplights in the city are green. And if they were, you'd have chaos and wrecks. And that's what you have. One of the reasons I would like for us to zone in on this and focus in on this subject is because we've seen what happens in the classrooms. As goes the classroom, so goes the culture. As goes the classroom, so goes the society. And we live in this society, and we have to make sure that the world doesn't, doesn't spill into the four walls of the church and the world doesn't spill into the four walls of my family unit and my heart and my mind 
And that's why God gave us the truth so we, like Ravi Zachariah, can actually see through the fact that even though we have gone through existentialism and all of the uh, above eras and philosophies, and we've now arrived at postmodernism, every one of them we can recognize there is a slither of truth. Existentialism is where you just, you, you have to connect with something larger than just your life. You have to become one with every. Now, there's a need for it because God has planted eternity in the hearts of man. And there is a slither of truth in this need for, an extension, for extensionalism. But, you know, if I was going to kill you, I wouldn't give you a glass of arsenic and say, here's a glass of arsenic, drink it. No, I would say, here's a glass of water with a drop of arsenic in it, right? It has to look good in order for you to embrace it, and then it kills you. And so it's important for us to understand this subject in greater depth so that we can make sense of what we see happening in the world. Now, one of the very frustrating things we have been experiencing in the last few years, especially in the last few weeks, is how everybody just talks past each other. Have you noticed? Everybody just talks past each other. I was watching an interview on TV the other day. There were four people and an interviewer, and they were all talking at the same time. No one was listening. Until the time was over, they were all screaming. But everybody just keeps projecting their views and nobody's understanding each other. There is what I call a Tower of Babel principle at work here in this current culture. Some of the confusion that exists is due to the fact that nobody is even speaking the same language. They're not using the same meanings. By using the same terms, they mean different things. Terms no longer mean what they used to mean. The same thing is no longer the same thing. Well, the same thing is no longer the same meaning to everybody. Words and terms have been deconstructed and they have been revised. Even history has been deconstructed and revised. And the people who come from the same family back a few generations ago sees that history in two complete different lights and realize this, that all communication rests upon this concept of the definition of terms. One person says love. We all talk about love around a table. You have a few people sitting. The one thinks sex. The other one thinks care. The other one thinks of, you, you know, um, goodwill. Uh, everybody thinks differently about the same term. All communication rests upon the definitions of terms. And if terms no longer mean the same thing to everybody, then there will never be any fruitful or peaceful or truthful communication. And that's what we're seeing today. So here are some of the new, and that's all because of the deconstructionist mindset and philosophy in our postmodern world. Here are some of the new ways of viewing language as a deconstructionist. As developed by French philosopher Jacques Derrida, excuse me, Jacques Derrida, and as taught by your average college professor on all the universities and colleges here in the United States, okay? So I'm going to go ask Han to go to this website, which it'll now show you the new meaning or the new approach to interpreting a word or a term, okay? Uh, I'm going to read them and then you play them, okay? The first one is multiplicity, multiplicity. Multiplicity. There are multiple meanings for everything, so there's no evidence behind the meaning of any 
free floating signifiers. Free floating signifiers. In the instruction, change the singular or stable meaning freeway to a statement by a language that multiplies meanings. Dissemination. Dissemination. Supplement. Supplement. In the construction, there is a surplus of meaning and rhetoric. A surplus of meaning and rhetoric. Supplement. Sure, the word is truth. But here's another meaning of truth. All right, last one. Decentering. Decentering. No central meaning is possible within a set. Everything is multiple and stable and without meaning. Romans 1 verse 30 says that they will become inventors of evil things. They will invent evil things. And we are seeing this playing out today. So my goal today is to bring scriptural clarity to misinterpreted ideas. A scriptural perspective of what we now see, um, the ideas and the misinterpreted ideas that are being floated through society. My goal today is to bring scriptural clarity to misinterpreted terms, to misinterpreted perspectives. In so doing, I'm hoping to overturn certain cultural lies with biblical truths. You, you know, I found out one thing, and that the only place of normalcy is this right here, the scriptures. <laughs> Everything else is abnormal. Are you guys cold in here? Everything else is abnormal. If you want normalcy, go to scriptures. And so we're going to start with two terms, two words, and uh, see how they have been decentralized, displaced, misinterpreted, reinvented, revised, and changed in its meaning. Number one is God versus good. Then I'm going to talk to you about number two, which is tolerance versus acceptance. Number three, justice versus vengeance. Number four, rights versus privilege. Number five, poverty versus relative poverty. Number six, fairness versus justice. So let's start with the first one, God versus good. Let me start right off the bat and say that our postmodern world has rejected the scriptural God in pursuit of social good. Postmodernism has very clearly rejected the scriptural God in pursuit of social good. The postmodern idea is that everything we deem to be good has to naturally be affirmed by God. Why? Because God is good, and everything that we think is good, therefore, has to be God, has to be accepted, has to be brought into the church. And if the Scripture, alt if the scripture uh, disagrees with it, then the Scripture is wrong because God is good, and anything good has to be God. You see, the postmodern idea is that everything we deem good, we deem good, is God. But I'm trying to show to you that sometimes good becomes the enemy of God. Let me say the social good becomes the enemy of scriptural God. In Genesis 3 verse 6, we see the woman saw, I'll read it to you. The, when the woman saw that the tree was what? Good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was desirable to make one wise. 
she took from it, ate it, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Eve was told by God not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. But there was something about that tree she could not resist. She justified doing what God told her not to because she saw something in that fruit. She saw it. And she reasoned and justified disobeying God. What was that that she saw that she could not resist? It was the good in that fruit. It was good, she saw. She saw it was desirable. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. And Eve was not drawn, listen to this, Eve was not drawn to the evil part of the fruit. She was drawn to the good part of that fruit. The good part of that fruit is what justified her in taking it and eating it. You see, in every context, this is true. I think it's just one degree too cold in here. So, in, in, in every context in life, this is true. Working hard and earning money is a good thing. Working hard and earning money and earning a life is a good thing. But working hard and earning money in place of worshiping God, doing what is good in place of worshiping God now becomes evil. So in this example, what seems good in man's eyes is evil in God's sight. Another example is that nobody thinks sucking a newly formed baby out of his mother's womb with a vacuum is a moral idea. Nobody says, oh, that's moral. But many believe an adult woman should have the right to choose whatever she wants. She should be free to choose what she wants, and that is good. Therefore, since that is the good thing, we declare the whole entire practice of abortion as good and therefore also should be accepted by God, who is good. It is good, therefore God's okay with it. The good they see in that evil practice justifies the, the evil of the practice itself. Just like Ravi said, in every one of those systems of thought, there's a slither of truth and everybody grabs onto the slither of truth, the exception to the rule, and they justify the entire evil by looking simply at the small portion of good in it. You see what I'm going. See, even though scriptures call homosexuality a sin, many believe that it is accepted by God. Why? Because God is love and would never stop two humans from loving each other. How can you stop somebody from loving each other? Love is good. The good they see in a, in a sinful practice justifies the evil of that practice itself. Can we all say the word discernment, please? Discernment. Even though scriptures call sex outside of marriage a sin, many believe love is what makes something godly and therefore justifies living together. Just like Eve saw the good and the desirable part of the fruit, so also people argue that something is justified before God because they look at the, the, the good and the desirable part of that sinful act. 
justify it. Today, we are facing off with cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism, also known as critical theory, which is a great example of an absolute evil, but is widely accepted by culture all over the world because of the good that people see in it. They see the sliver of good and they embrace the whole entire thing, not knowing that they've just, they've just taken a bite from what they shouldn't have. They just touched what God told them not to. And I hope to clarify some of this today. So please stay tuned. Just like Eve, Eve who saw the good and the desirable part of the fruit, so also people look at the good, the noble, and moral part, the good, the noble, the compassionate, and moral part of Marxism without considering its evil and devastating doctrine of covetousness. Without considering its evil and devastating doctrine of envy. Without considering its evil and devastating doctrine of greed embedded into its makeup. Marxism drives the ideology or its own ideology by claiming it is good because it is compassionate towards who? The downtrodden. Marxism shows itself to be good because it seems to be fighting for the marginalized. It promises to be fighting for the oppressed. It shows itself to fight for the discriminated. Marxism feeds off the division it creates between subcultures. And I've talked about this. It feeds off the division that it creates between genders. Is there division? Yes. Are we a divided, are we a divided body? Not in Christ. But Marxism feeds off of the divisions created in genders and the differences in socioeconomic groups. For instance, Marxism draws its lines between classes between ethnic groups, between gender categories. That is where we get class warfare, the poor against the rich. This is the, the, the haves and the have-nots, and now it's created this, you know, this victim. And Marxism says, we will fight for you. This is where we get identity politics, which is also known as race wars. One ethnic group against another ethnic group when in fact there's only one race in the Bible which is the human race, all from Adam. This is also where we get gender warfare, where female against male, this is where feminism's found its roots. So Marxism feeds off of the divide between the oppressor and the oppressed, the abuser and the abused, the predator and the victim. Marxism has been implemented in times past and and every time it has been implemented anywhere in the world, in any generation, it has been a deadly disaster. Why? Because of the doctrine of envy embedded into its nature and its makeup. And it's constructed with the concept of covetousness. And when we read the word do not covet or the term do not covet in the Bible, we think God's joking. He needed to just fill the space. No, God knew what covetousness will do in a generation, in a society, in a family, in a marriage, and in child, children when we raise them. There, that is an absolute evil. And the fruits thereof is devastating and deadly and we didn't realize it. Why? Because we're looking at the compassion it sells itself as.
it is important for me as a pastor to make both a scriptural and an intellectual argument as to why I stand with the certain ideas I do and stand against other ideas. I do not validate this next minister, uh, I do not validate this next speaker as a minister of the gospel. I don't validate him as a Christian. But I certainly do agree with his perspective of Marxism, especially from a moral an historical, an intellectual, and a philosophical perspective. So uh, let's just watch this two-minute video, Jordan Peterson. Um, the fact that the postmodernists fail to be Marxist is also something that I find, I would say, much, much intellectually reprehensible and morally repugnant. And one of the things that one of the things that the postmodernists, postmodernly Marxists, continue to claim is that they have nothing but compassion for the downtrodden. And I would say that anybody with more than When you look through history and you trace the outcomes of Marxism, it has been absolutely devastating. Just like every single time uh, we buy into something that is evil only because it put a good foot forward like, for instance, the angel of light. Charles Spurgeon said this, that discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. That's not discernment. He said, it is knowing the difference between right and almost right. 
That's discernment. In other words, discernment is therefore the ability to identify the difference between good and God. She saw that it was good, but it wasn't God. Discernment is knowing that difference, and there's no possible way of discerning the difference between what is good and what is God other than going straight to Scriptures and that using it as an objective truth that comes to you and not a subjective truth that comes from you. Like, I feel that this is good because it's so compassionate. Until you look at it from a scriptural perspective, you'll never recognize the covetous, the, 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 the doctrine of covetousness and the doctrine of greed and the doctrine of envy embedded inside of it. And you didn't know that it was going to kill you. So when it comes to Marxism, one has to be able to use discernment to see the evil doctrine of envy that lurks underneath those claims of compassion. Patrice Collars, co-founder of Black Lives Matter organization, said this, and I quote, We are trained Marxists, co-founder of BLM. We are trained Marxists. We are superversed in ideological theories. Ideological theories. In other words, they know how to take subcultures within society and ideologically turn them upon each other. And allow society to implode as we see it imploding today. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man. There is a way that seems right, but its end is the way of death. I want to look at that verse for a moment. I wish I, I, wish I had more time. I want to look at this verse for a moment. From Benson's commentary. It says for about Proverbs 12, uh, Proverbs 14, 12, it says, There is a way that seems right unto a man, means there are some evil actions of courses which men may think to be lawful and good, either through gross ignorance or self-flattery, flattery, flattery, like calling yourself compassionate. Then he says, it says, but the end thereof are the ways of death, meaning the events that come from it show that they were sinful and destructive ideas. Or you may say the outcomes prove that they were sinful and destructive to begin with. I hope you understood what it's, what it's saying. There, there, see, there, there, there's, there is a way which seems right to man. It seems good to man. It seems good to Eve. But the end of it was complete destruction. This is Marxism in a nutshell. It appears to be compassionate and moral. But the moment you bite into it, it defiles your soul with what? With envy. It defiles your soul with greed. It defiles your soul with covetousness. I want that. That thing you drive, I want it. It defiles you with greed, covetousness, and envy. Absolute sinful in the sight of God. It leads to always the same path, violence. So why is it important for you and me to understand the good, that good is not necessarily God? Why? Because there is a, force, there's a forced feeding 
of ideas. There's a forced feeding of worldviews, whether it's in the high school classrooms, whether it's college classrooms, whether it is the news media, whether it's the newspapers. We are always, we're constantly being forced feed, fed on this worldview, on the concepts of ideologies that cripples people's biblical understanding of what God says when He says, this is good. Just because there's something good about an idea, an ideology, or a policy does not mean it is a godly idea, a godly ideology, or a godly policy. Just because something seems compassionate does not mean it is necessarily loving. Just because something seems loving does not mean it is necessarily scriptural. Just because something seems good does not mean it is necessarily God. You see, if somebody comes to you with a policy, if somebody comes to you with a worldview, if somebody comes, with, comes to you with a philosophy, your response should always be the same. And it should be chapter and verse, please. Where? Where is it? If there is no chapter and if there's no verse, it is not necessarily God, no matter how compassionate and loving it seems. I do not have to buy into anything that is not normal to me, which is scriptures from cover to cover. Number two, difference between tolerance and acceptance. Lord knows we need hours of this. Tolerance versus acceptance. This is a major thing within the culture. We've gone through it. We've been hurt by it. We've been crippled by it. We've been confused by it. We've bought into all kinds of lies because of it. So let me explain. Postmodern thinkers have redefined the idea, the term, of tolerance to now mean acceptance. The meaning has changed. It no longer means to tolerate somebody. It means to accept their idea. To tolerate somebody now means you must accept and embrace that person's perspective, perspectives, ideas, and ideologies in order to not hate them. They claim the moment you do not accept their ideas, let's say, the LGBT community's ideas, the moment you don't embrace it, then you are intolerant of them, and therefore, naturally, you hate them. Can you see how deconstructionism and revisionism has changed language on us and changed and made enemies out of everybody? If they can revise the meaning, they can turn people into enemies. For instance, discernment versus discrimination <laughs> you know since when did God well, of course you shouldn't discriminate but at what point ought you not to discern so let's clarify a few things when you tolerate somebody it does not mean you accept their ideas it's not the same thing they want you to think it's the same thing. It's not. To reject somebody's ideas does not mean you are intolerant of that person, and neither does it mean that you hate that person. Example. Let's say my son comes up with this idea of spending my entire month's salary on a brand new flat screen TV for himself in his room. As a grown-up adult and as a father, I will be able to tolerate my son while rejecting his idea, wouldn't I? Without also rejecting him as a person. All of that done in love, without any hating involved. 
You see, tolerance used to mean reject, respecting the person even though you disagree with his ideas. But postmodern culture believes that all ideas are equal. They believe that all ideas are equal. Can you believe this? That's why, how dare you say Jesus is the only way? All ideas are equal. All gods are equal. All roads lead to Rome. Who are you to think you are so superior to all other religions? But let's, look, let's put it into a simple practical, understandable context. You see, the truth is, all ideas are not equal. If all ideas were equal, then why do things cost different amounts of money? Why are certain things more expensive than other things? Why aren't we paying the same amount of money for a bicycle as we do for a Rolls Royce? <laughs> I mean, they both help us travel, don't they? They're just different ideas on how to travel. They should cost exactly the same amount, and a bicycle and a Rolls Royce. No. Family, all ideas are not equal. Religions aren't equal. And all ideas should not have the same outcomes. It should take you longer to cycle to New York than it takes you to drive to New York with a Rolls Royce. It should. That's why it's more expensive to buy a Rolls Royce. That's not the only reason. That's one. A person is not their idea. Therefore, rejecting their idea is not the same as rejecting them. Folks, if you knew what was being taught in the classrooms of the Ivy League universities of this nation, you would fall out of your chair. And if you had to see how much they pay to get taught this kind of junk, you would fall out of your chair. A person is not their idea. Therefore, rejecting their idea does not mean you're rejecting them. In a postmodern world, the concept of intolerance has been equated with hate. So now, if you do not agree with a person, you're actually guilty of hating that person. To disagree with a person's ideology is not the same as hating that person. Come on, please. The actual meaning of tolerance is to respect the person even when you disagree with their idea. That's tolerance. This newly constructed idea of tolerance is fascist in concept. Because the moment you do not accept their idea or their, their ideology or their theology, they will become extremely intolerant of you. The moment you refuse to agree with what they believe is compassionate or what they believe is moral or what they believe is loving, from their perspective is when you are an evil, hateful, homophobe, a sexist, a misogynist, a xenophobic, narcissist, racist, scum of the earth. They will cancel you in every way possible. Why? Because they hate. They are resentful. And I'll show it to you. A week or two ago, a senior pastor of a mega church with almost 100,000 people in his congregation combined, he has multiple congregations, almost 100,000 people on a Sunday morning, 
He selected the laughing emoji on a political meme on Charlie Kirk's Facebook page. Charlie Kirk, the head of Turning Points USA. He actually just laughed at a meme on their Facebook page. And as a result, there was a complaint from a high school teacher. And in one week, which is about two weeks ago, all of this pastor's ministries statewide and nationwide, all of those outreaches in hundreds of high schools and prisons, not his actual campuses, church campuses, but all of his ministerial efforts in supporting and giving, giving programs uh, um, on, you know, overcoming addiction and so forth. All of those programs that he had in high schools, in colleges, in universities, and in prisons, all of them, hundreds of them, canceled, closed, closed up shop. You no longer are welcome in this prison. He selected a laughing emoji at a very general middle-of-the-road meme on Charlie Kirk's Facebook page. Amazing. Where's the tolerance in that? It's called cancel culture. Not much love coming from them, from them postmodern, deconstructive, cancel culture mindsets. So why is it important that Christians, you and I, know the difference between tolerance and acceptance? Because we will not be told that scriptures lack compassion. I will not be told that my God cannot love and does not know what love is. I will not be told that my God does not care. And that's what they're trying to tell you. We will not be bullied into embracing a false notion of tolerance and a false compassion and a compromised version of love that breaks scriptures just in order to please the angry mob. The family of God, do not, for, uh, do not fall for the virtue rhetoric coming from politicians. Don't fall for the virtue rhetoric that comes from actors and late night, late night talk show hosts because no one is good but God. He determines good. No one defines evil but God. He defines what is evil and what is righteous. No one defines sin but God. No one outlines justice but God. No one determines what is moral and what is immoral but God. No one defines love and compassion. God does that. No one speaks for God outside of scriptures the scriptures speak for him sufficiently. Tolerance and acceptance, not the same thing. Number three, justice and vengeance. <clears throat> justice and vengeance. Here are two lies the postmodern culture has brought into, or they have bought into regarding justice. Two lies. Postmodern mindsets in this postmodern culture bought into regarding justice. They think vengeance is justice. And they think justice is theirs to execute by taking vengeance. Let me say it again. They think that vengeance is just. And they think that justice was given into their hands to execute 
by taking vengeance on those they disagree with. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge. It's clear. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God. <laughs> Never take vengeance. Step back so you can leave room for God's wrath in that situation. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, there's a difference between justice and vengeance. Justice works toward a functional and balanced society, while vengeance works towards destroying even their own. And they do. <clears throat> Nature of the beast. Justice is about restoring balance, while vengeance is about retaliation. I will not turn the other cheek. Justice is God getting his way. Vengeance is man getting in the way of God getting his way. That's why it says, but leave room for the wrath of God. Have you ever gotten so angry at somebody for being wrong that you yourself became wrong? And now you stand before God with that sin? You see, revenge implies the premise of me against them. While justice implies the premise of them against the law. Them against God. Because remember, God is 100% completely just. Every single evil, every single transgression, all iniquities, every single abuse will be paid for in Christ or in hell forever. But justice will be done. If not in this world, in the world to come. The difference between justice and vengeance. Why is this important to understand? Because as Christians, you are called to justly or to do justly in the face of discrimination. You have to do the right thing in the face of injustice. You have to do the right thing in the face of hate. Jesus did what was right while everybody did to him what was wrong. He never did what was wrong. He always did what was right. Not before anybody else but God your response whether it be revenge whether it be retaliation or whether it be hey <laughs> I'm going to forgive and I'm going to let God all of what you choose to do is before God and you will one day stand before God for what you chose to do not based on what others did to you justice and this is way beyond what we've experienced in the last few weeks this is in life in general. This is true in marriage. This is in true, in, true in child rearing. This is true in every possible relationship you can think of. We live before God. You see, there's a difference between those two. Justice works towards functional and balanced society, but vengeance towards destruction. Why is this important? Because Jesus did what was right. What does it mean to do justly? What does it mean to do justly? Jesus, Jesus taught us how to deal justly with, with horrible situations. Did you know that? He outlined it word for word. How we ought to respond when facing off with hate, with discrimination, with injustice. Matthew 5.38, he says it. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. 
and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. doesn't matter who they are. It, Jesus said this, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. You see, there's no vengeance in that. There's no retaliation in that. He teaches us how to respond. <laughs> he says it. He says in verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, whoever forces you to go one mile, what should you do? Go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love them. Love them. Love them. That's our response to a person that hates us. It says, and pray for those who do what? Who persecute you. Who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is also in heaven. So that you may be sons of your, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Let me help you. None. There is no reward for the person who loves the one who loves them and hates the enemy that he may have. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? None. Do not even the tax collectors do that. The worst of the worst do that. Ought the church not to be different? Of course they are. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. By considering the sermon of Jesus, it is obvious that Jesus was and is the great destroyer of critical theory, of Marxism. He did not call you to retaliate. He called you to trust Him. Number four, rights versus privilege. Deconstructionism wants you to interpret privilege as being rights. They've changed the meaning and the understanding. It wants you to think that when you are not privileged, as others are, you see, compare yourself with others, and if you're not as privileged as they are, that means you do not have the equal rights as they do have. The truth is, rights are rooted in freedom, in the freedoms provided to you by civil laws. Privilege, on the other hand, is rooted in the individual's upbringing provided to them by their parents and their family. You see, you are privileged because your parents made you go to school and made you study. You are privileged today because your parents gave you the rod of correction which removed evil from you. You are privileged because your parents loved you, your parents prayed for you, your parents hugged you, your parents trained you, they cared for you, and they, they taught you in life skills. You were therefore privileged because they were, for, they were there for you every step of the way. You see, you know, and I know, both of, we all know some family members 
raised in all different ethnic groups. Some families have raised from the poorest state some of the most privileged children, well-mannered, respectful, honorable, God-fearing, with great character and impeccable decency, ready to be used by God in staggering ways. The government can't do that for you. Why is this distinction so imperative? Because we cannot fix what is broken if we continue shifting blame while ignoring the actual problems. I hope you're following what I'm saying. Number five, poverty versus relative poverty. We're coming in for a short landing here. Poverty versus relative poverty. Poverty in the, let me just say this, deconstructionists, they don't want you to even know what poverty is anymore. They just want to tell you, in comparison to a lot of other people, you're poor. It's a whole new meaning of what it is to be poor in today's world, as in compared to what Jesus was saying when he talked about poverty. You see, poverty in the New Testament times meant not only did you not have anything, but you also had no way of attaining anything. The, the, you had no options. You were poor. Checkmate. You were in a corner. Back up against the wall. Maybe no giftings. Maybe too old to make a living. Maybe no opportunities to exercise the giftings you had. You had nothing and you had no, of, no way of gaining anything. In the Bible, in the New Testament, in Jesus' times, that meant poverty. If you were poor in the New Testament, three things were true about you. You had nothing. You had no way of gaining anything. No opportunity. You had no family to care for you. Why do you think Paul laid out those requirements regarding widows before they were, before they were to be given food from the church? He very specifically said, and make sure that they have to have no family to care for them. Then the church will step in. and care, Because then they are poor. Because without those three requirements being being true for a person, they are not poor from a scriptural perspective. Why is this distinction so important for you and I today? I'm attempting to take a cultural lie and replace it with a biblical truth because this is the only possible way to keep people sane. <laughs> Why is this distinction imperative? Because chances are that people today have the sense of compassion for a poor person because they are poor. And the Bible says to care for the poor. All right? Now, the only problem with today's poor people is that most of them have $800 cell phones. Designer bags. And here's a big one. Been in the United States of America, a pastor for 20 years. Here's a big one that has always taking me back and I'm reading the New Testament and I'm going, wait a minute, I don't understand this. Every time a person walks through the church doors and asks for support because they're poor, I'm like, all right, well, here's the number. Here's the number to that homeless shelter around the corner. They go, no, no, I don't sleep in homeless shelters. No. I'd like to see if you guys will put me up in a hotel. You think it's funny? <laughs> I wish... 
And you know what? I'll be honest with you. I repented to God while I was, while I was preparing. Because I can't tell you the amount of times I put people up in hotels because they wouldn't go to a shelter. Well, that day has come to an end. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's, it's laughable. Most of the people we view today as poor would have been viewed as well off in Jesus' day. So when he said, take care of the poor, he wasn't talking about who the culture is telling you is poor today. What I'm saying is that in comparison to Jesus' time, you're currently, you and I currently know very actual poor people, if any, in the United States. The idea of caring for the poor has become a political weapon. That's what this is. And have twisted scriptures as a means to validate a corrupted power-hungry group of people. That's what it is. Poverty versus relative poverty. <laughs> Number six. We are landing. Much of what people may mean by justice is not necessarily justice. I want to show you the difference between fairness and justice. Fairness and justice. Everybody's heard the term fairness ideology or fairness policies, fairness mindsets. But much of what people mean by justice is what theologians call envy. Today's justice has been revised, retermed, to mean something different. It now means envy. Well, it now means good when the Bible sees it as envy. Covetousness is to have, now let me just say, envy and, envy and covetousness work hand in hand. Covetousness is to have an unhealthy desire for what belongs to another person. An unhealthy emotional desire for what belongs to another person. In the West, that's almost normal because you know like the Joneses living up to the Joneses that whole concept you look over the fence and you see the car they have and like man I want that car man I want that house man I want his wife it says do not covet another man's wife don't want what belongs to somebody else don't have now if you want a nice family like they have that's great just don't want theirs if you want a nice car, like everybody else, that's great. Just don't want his car. <laughs> that's covetousness. So you're okay with, uh, the person with a covetous heart is okay with somebody else having something, but they're absolutely not okay with them not having it. That's covetousness. It's the haves and the have-nots, okay? This is why I'm, I'm telling you Marxism has embedded within it covetousness. The haves and the have-nots. We will resent you for having something we don't have. Covetousness, Marxism. You covet when you have an unhealthy emotion, an unhealthy desire for what belongs to another person. The Ten Commandments tells us very specifically. The Tenth Commandment, especially the Tenth One, that seems so trivial, has become a complete, total misnomer in our society. You won't have any other gods before me. We get it. You should be our, our highest priority. 
honor your father and mother. We get it. There's a promise connected to it. It'll go well with me. Remember the Sabbath day. Rest. You shall not make any graven images. I get it. You don't want me to worship anything else. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, don't use God's name to get what you want. God tells me, God told me last night that you should marry me. You know, you can't, you can't use God's name to get what you want. Don't use His name in vain. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. We get it. You shall not steal. Okay. Unless it's below $750. <laughs> you see? Did you know about that law? Nobody gets arrested if it's 750 or less. Anything more than that, arrest them for theft. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Okay, don't lie about your neighbors. Thou shalt not covet. Okay, whatever. Except for that one right there is the root of all of the evil we see today. It's the root of everything we see today. Nobody's content with what they have, even though they are now more prosperous. This is the most prosperous generation and era in the history of humanity, and nobody's, nobody's content with it. Nobody. Everybody's suddenly poor. <laughs> Relative poverty. You see, this 10th commandment, seemingly insignificant issue, has set our world ablaze with evil, with all these ideologies. The second ancient evil, which is alive and well today, is envy. The first one is covetousness. Eve coveted in her heart for what was not hers to have. The second ancient evil, which is alive and well today, is envy. Envy is when you see another person's success and you see their achievement and you become resentful toward them for that success and for that achievement. I resent you for being successful while I'm not as successful. If I suffer from envy, Jacques, if I suffer from envy, I will become resentful toward the person who has succeeded beyond me. I will, I will try really hard. I will try every, every way possible by using my rights to be equally successful as that person and to have achieved the same kind of things and be celebrated the same way. But here's envy, here envy is different. If I do not achieve the same success as what I see you have achieved, then I will wish for, the, for your failure. I will wish for your demise. I will strategize for your failure. And I will strategize for your demise as long as we can find that we are equal. You see, at that point when I have envy in my heart, I don't want you to have what you have unless I too can have it. And if I cannot have what you have, I want you to lose what you've got. Envy. Again, you can very clearly see embedded inside of the ideology of Marxism, there lies the root envy and the root covetousness. And those two things, God said, watch out. Watch out. Now, the way to deal with envy and covetousness is not to achieve and to gain and to succeed and to be celebrated. That's not the way to deal with the envy in your heart. The only way to deal with the envy and the covetousness in your heart is to repent from it. It's to say, God, I have in my heart those things that keep me discontent with my life as I compare it with everybody else's. I am discontent until I get what they've got. I have this in me and, I, and I've bitten into that apple. I've bitten into that fruit. And it's defiled me. Remember that Jesus was explaining that 
What goes into your mouth doesn't defile you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. And then what does he say? Covetousness. Covetousness defiles a man. Do you know that the moment Eve bit into that, her eyes opened and she saw everything different? Suddenly she saw her own shame. The moment people buy into something like Marxism, I've seen it over and over and over and over again. I, with Tina and I know a, a young lady from, uh, down from Tinley Park. She, we used to work with her. I always used to say to her, you are going to be the first. You are going to be president of the United States. And you are going to be president of the United States. And I am going to be your biggest support. I will rally for you. I say, you, you are like Condoleezza Rice on steroids. I mean, you are fantastic. You've got a bright mind. You see things scripturally in every way. I can't tell you how heartbroken I am about how when somebody bites into that fruit of Marxism, everything, everything changes for them. Now, they see everything from a different perspective. Now they don't just see good. They see good and they see the evil in everything. Ah, you see, there is evil in that. Yeah, there is. It needs to be overthrown. It needs to be deconstructed. It needs to be revised. It needs to be rewritten. It needs to be retold. It needs to be pulled down. The stop, the oppression. And I'm like, what? Where? You are like wealthy. You are everything anybody would want around the world. What are you thinking? What are you saying? Why do you see yourself this way? Envy defiles a man. Covetousness defiles a person. So the way to deal with envy and covetousness is not to achieve and succeed and satisfy, that it cannot be satisfied. Covetousness cannot be satisfied. Envy cannot be satisfied. Greed cannot be satisfied. It can only be repented from. And so finally, here are four distinctions between fairness and justice. I will only read them to you. You can jot them down, and then you can study them for yourself. But justice, from a biblical perspective, justice is essentially what God requires of man. Could you quote that for me, Tina? Hosea 6, 8, 8 6. What is it that the Lord requires of you, O man, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God? What is it that God requires of you, O man, that you do justly, not bring justice, but that you do justly? You do what Jesus said, turn the other cheek. That's doing justice, or that's doing justly. I'm not bringing justice to the person. I'm doing what's right before God. All right, so the four distinctions between fairness and justice, and you'll see that fairness becomes an enemy of justice. If people talk about fairness, watch out. Watch out. If you start thinking fairness, watch out. Because Paul says very clearly that they compared themselves one with another and they became fools. You compare yourself with God. That is just. Justice will be done. How? Every single person will be measured against scriptures, not against their father who left them. Every person will be measured against scriptures, not against their brother who hated them. 
You're not going to be able to tell God one day, well, God, I didn't obey you because somebody else did me wrong. It's not going to work. You can't do the wrong thing because somebody else did the wrong thing. God requires of you to do the right thing. That's what Jesus was teaching you. Turn the other cheek. Even if somebody else does what is wrong, you do what is right. Always before God. Number one, justice is essentially what God requires from man. Well, fairness is what men demand from each other. That's not fair. You've got to share. Let me read that again. Justice is essentially what God requires from man. Fairness, on the other hand, is what men demand from each other. Number two, justice is when a person is measured against God's divine standards, while fairness is when people measure themselves one with another. Number three, justice emphasizes personal, personal responsibility. Let me say it again. Justice emphasizes personal responsibility. Fairness emphasizes personal rights. Number four, justice holds the individual guilty for his offense. Every man will give an account. Justice will hold, justice holds the individual guilty for his offense. David falls to his knees and he says, God, oh God, I've sinned against you. Justice holds the individual guilty for his offense. Fairness holds society guilty for an individual's offense. And here is where I would like to close. We live in a very, very complicated era, a very complicated generation with very complicated thoughts and ideologies that have been crafted over a very long period of time. And as Peterson mentioned, who is a clinical psychologist from the University of Toronto, the guy I showed you on video, as he showed that much of this came from French philosophers, but the Bible warns us that people will be inventors of evil. They will be able to invent evil based upon, rooted in their covetous and resentful and hateful and their vengeful hearts. But we find safety where? In scriptures. Like I said, if anybody comes to you with a thought, with an ideology, with a poly, anybody, you say, chapter and verse, please. Where is this? Where is this? Because normalcy is scripture. Scripture is normalcy. Anything outside of it, you're on a slippery slope. <laughs> Amen? I mean, I hope you got something out of today. Let's pray as we get ready to worship the Lord. Father, today, I pray that you reach into every heart today. And you bring wholeness. You bring wholeness through truth. I pray, Father God, that every person who may be slighted, tainted with lies and with falsehoods, that all of it will be removed. Like David prayed, show in me if there's any falsehood within me. Show me, God, if there's any falsehood in me. I want to see it, God. I want to see the reality of who I am and who you are. And I want to find the, the plan that you have for us to be reconciled once again. God, that is only done by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so I pray, God, that you reveal within me what I need to come to you with. And I need to lay on the altar those things I'm angry over, those things I'm disappointed over, those things that are broken in my life, those things that I have bought into that I shouldn't have, those things I have had feelings about but I shouldn't have had. I bring that to the altar and I say, God, I need healing in so many ways. I come to you, God, and I change the way I view things. I change my mind. I repent. And God, I know that I cannot perfectly repent. I cannot even change me. I'm asking you by your grace to do a work within me, to both will and to do your good pleasure. Oh, God, help me see things from your perspective. You said your ways are higher than my ways because your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I want your thoughts, God. I want to be free from all of these chains and these bondages that lies bring. I want to be free from it, God. And I pray that this church will be free from it, God. That there will be only one, and that is us together in Christ. We are one in Jesus. And we are reconciled together with God. Because of the cross. And if there's anyone who's standing on the outside looking in and saying, I need to make right with God. I need to be reconciled with God. I need God to be my father. I know that I'm a fallen man and I need salvation because I know God is holy and I'm not. I know this and I want to make right with God. If that is you, this is your moment. This is your moment. You put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. That allows God, that causes you to be saved by God. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I'm going to encourage you today to draw near to God in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.